Morning, Rob. Regarding grinding the dice, that actually may be a form of cheating. Uh, Vegas rules, you must hold the dice in your fingers, not your palm, and you must bounce it off the tray and the wall of the table in order for the throw to count. The reason they do this is because research indicates a die is likely to flip once. So, if you hold it in your palm with the one side up, you're more likely to get a six than other results. If you're grinding the dice, locking them together, that gives you an increased likelihood to hit a certain target. The sum of whatever facings are opposite to the ones that are facing up. Granted, we're not in Vegas, but it's something to be aware of. In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope, bring your pole or a rope, or else you might go down in a heap. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob, podcasting to you live from beautiful Northeast Minneapolis. There at the top of the show, we heard Taylor from Clerics Wear Ringmail addressing the idea of grinding the dice, um, something that Anthony from Casting Shadows kind of brought up and I responded to, I think, in the Saturday show. Um, yeah, I, I see what you're saying there. And um, I've seen it at the table where I think someone tries to kind of palm the dice and just drop it rather than giving it a good roll. And I don't know if it's backed up by any kind of uh, evidence or probability or anything like that, but it seems to me that D4 seems like it might be the most likely to be unfair or cheated with in that regard. Uh, maybe a D6 too, I don't know, but yeah, I've seen people try to do that and never really called them on it because I just kind of think, well, if, <laughs> if it's really that important to them, I don't, I don't really care. It's, it's not going to work all the time and uh, yeah, it, it would just lead to a big brouhaha at the table. Um, but I, th I think your point is correct in that regard. And we also heard from our resident bard for the show, Spencer, a.k.a. Free Thrall, from the Keep Off the Borderlands podcast, doing my, pod my, my podcast theme song. Thanks, Spencer, for your contributions there. And regarding bards, yeah, it looks like if you if you want to get some feedback, some calls in your show, just talk about bards and talk about what might be a continuum or contrast of playing the game versus playing the game. Because that's what most of the calls, uh, the, the slew of calls I have are in regards to, although there are a few other calls uh, answering, answering my query about just where you can find some uh, bard character presentation, some representation in literature, and a few other topics as well. So I'll stop blabbering and let's get on to the calls. Welcome to the penthouse, Thunder. Hey, Rob, I did the silly thing and I paused your show here at the beginning to say, I definitely understand what you're saying with bards and you're not wrong, 
it, it just depends on the group, right? But I did definitely know what you're saying, where some people, when they want to play them, you're like, oh, no, not this again. I, I know what I do, what I've tried to do in the past, when Eric Sawsweedle of the 3D Omega Trick and Coop podcast was running Talisman for me and Joe from Hindsightless, and I was playing a minstrel, effectively a bard, what I did was I went outside of the game, I went and copied Dan Limericks because my character, you know, basically recited a dirty limerick to cast a spell. So I had a list of limericks ready to go so I didn't have to rely on my quick wits. I could just go and pull a limerick off for the appropriate spell. Yeah, that's a good idea. You could use little player aids like that uh, to help you kind of present the type of character that you want to have, even if maybe your personality or mindset isn't so slanted towards that. So yeah, prep can definitely be your friend as a player and a GM. And Jason's got some more things here talking about um, getting into character and playing a, a, a specific type of character, even if it's maybe... Not so well suited. So, little, that's what my character would do story. We were playing in another game by Eric Sawsweedle. He was running um, Cosmic Blades and Solar Spells, or Cosmic Blades and Solar Blades and Cosmic Spells. Uh, Diego Noriega game, it's like a modification. Well, it's an evolution of the Black Hack, right? Great, great game. And effectively, it's a it's kind of like a Star Wars setting, but the way we ran it, effectively, it was Futurama the game. Eric will tell you he was pulling off Firefly, Guardians of the Galaxy, but is a, from a player perspective, it felt like Futurama the role-playing game. And my character, now, they, and there are solid classes in that game, and my character was playing the smart, I think, and I, I'm driving, so I can't look at the thing. And he, like, could fix things and was good technically and stuff like that, right? But, as I usually do, I rolled abysmal stats. And so he really wasn't that good at anything. Because, like the black hack in this system, you rolled against your attribute to, you know, when you did checks. And all my attributes were, like, very mid-range, you know? They were, they were you know, 10 and under. So, horrible, horrible character for that kind of game. So he had you know, probably less than 50% chance of doing anything. But I played him super confident. He was, uh, um, Tim the Toolman was his attitude, right? He was a mix between Tim the Toolman and um, Steve Buscemi and um, Armageddon. So we're, we're playing, and Jason Hobbs had joined the game, and and he, he wasn't there for the when I created the character, I don't think. But we're in his ship, and I'm like, oh, I'm a great pilot. I'll fly. And they're like, okay. And... So, and then my character started failing rolls. They're like, what the hell? And I'm like, no, I'll, I'll get it, I'll get it. And, and eventually, you know, when I would volunteer to do things in that game, they'd be like, no, never mind, I'll do it. And But it was, I mean, it was, yeah, I was doing what the character would do, but, I mean, I, it's not like I was intentionally sabotaging the party. It's, you know, they wanted to pilot. I was a pilot, and my character is very self-confident. He just had crap stats. So I was playing it. Um so maybe that was me being addicted to the rest of the party. I don't think so. And, and, and I think everybody got the joke. I think it was kind of a shock initially. They're like, wait, wait what, what's your score? A, a seven? No, get, get out of there. I'll, I'll fly. 
you, you know, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I enjoyed that at the time, but I could definitely see where some people would say I was a, a bad team member for playing that character like I did. Well, I wasn't there, so I, um, I don't know if you were being a bad team member or not <laughs> playing that game. Like we always say about most things, it kind of depends. Um, it depends on the, the group of people and the type of game you're trying to have. And I, a big part of that might be whether or not it's a one-shot type of thing uh, where I don't think people generally take things as seriously because there's not long-term ramifications for any actions. You just kind of let fly and whatever happens, happens. And I think they tend, in my experience, to be a little bit more on the jokey side than long-term play, which I think usually gets a little bit more serious, again, because the stakes are long-term rather than just one night of fun. So I think that kind of that style of play works better in a, like a one-shot type of game than, uh, than in campaign play. And I don't know, to me... I think that that's almost as much a system problem as a player problem. I've become less and less enthusiastic about the black hack the more I think about it and the more I hear about it. Initially, it seemed like a pretty cool system to me, and I I even have the two of Diogo's games that are use the black hack as uh, more or less a chassis, the sharp swords and sinister spells and that cosmic, blades and solar or whatever cosmic spells and solar blades all his games are just like a, a mouthful um which I, I don't know if it's intentional to to make it forgettable or not it's kind of like making up names for characters and npcs too you're just almost asking for people to forget about it <laughs> anyway tangent um with those games that are so attribute dependent, it does, and it seems like in a lot of cases, it doesn't matter what the hell level you are. That doesn't have any bearing on your on your chances of success. It's just what you rolled. So you could have a first level character with an eighteen dexterity, you know, got super lucky or sixteen, whatever, and they're better than like a a six level character with a fourteen dexterity. And it just no, that doesn't. If you're going to use a level-based game, the levels have to matter. That has to be the primary determinant, not not your attribute in, I don't know, rant over. So I, I think that is more the, the issue than anything else. But, I, you know, I think sometimes you just have to be kind of meta, too, about it. You know, if, uh, if you're, especially if you're putting the party in danger by, in your example, piloting the ship in some kind of treacherous circumstances. Maybe, maybe maybe, you should have said, hey, you know, guys, I really only have a seven in my stats, so I'm not a very good pilot. Maybe someone else should do this, uh, or I might get us all killed. I think sometimes you just have to have those meta conversations, too, uh, rather than just doing everything in character. But, you know, it's all about your type of fun, too, right? Um, and and the type of game you're playing. So, But I think the, my point in all of this is that it's not the player 
it's not the player's purview. I always decide, well, all that matters is what's fun for me because you have, you need to think about other things. It would almost be like playing a sport and knowing that you completely suck as a pitcher, but insi- but insisting in a game that you're the pitcher <laughs> um, to the detriment of your team's outcome. I mean, I know it's a, a, a little bit apples and oranges because role-playing games aren't a competitive game. Um, they're not, you know... I'm, they are a little bit, but not not to the degree that that actual like sports are and stuff. But uh, I don't know. It you just have to kind of read the room, and um, sometimes, especially if you're playing with people you haven't played before, it's hard to know what to do. Um, but I think eventually you get kind of a feel for what what the other players and GM in the, in the group like and don't like, and you just have to kind of, um, at sometimes come to compromises and play styles and just kind of settle in, in a in a manner that everyone kind of can enjoy. So yeah, let's go on to some other calls, but thanks for those, Jason. Yo, Rob, awesome episode, man. Uh, I do, I do gotta say, I, I think it's hard to argue that the games are better at their core, that they're better when they're simpler, that D and D is better when it's simpler. Cause if you just look around and see how many more people are playing the game today than ever before, uh, it, it's hard to argue that the older games are better Right. Like they're different. Absolutely. I'm not saying the newer games are better. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying they're different. And there's something about the way the game is now and the way the game has been progressing that has brought so, so, so many more people into the hobby than ever before role playing. It's in its new golden age. And yeah, there's there's got to be something there. Right. It's not just a fluke. Anyway, man. Peace out. And that was Joe from Hindsightless addressing a comment I made, I think, in the last Wednesday show about how I felt games and adventures were were usually better when they're when they were more simple, whether it was the the mechanisms in the game, the scope of the game, and the and the adventure like ideas, like how many twists and turns and MacGuffins and whatever uh, betrayals you have in an adventure. Sometimes it might be a good story, but it might not be a good game. And, um, yeah, this, this conversation is one of those that could be an entire podcast episode, but I'll try and be brief. I wasn't really trying to imply that they were better for everyone, that they were inherently better games. They were, they're better for me. And I think better for the group of people and the people I have played, played with. I think they tend to operate, more smoothly, more efficiently, more effectively. That doesn't necessarily mean they're better games for Joe or Jason or anyone else listening to this show. Um, that I didn't mean to imply that. I will, though, push back a little bit because I don't think the popularity of, say, 5e D&D or Call of Cthulhu or Pathfinder, I don't think any of those things... Um, are based much in the fact that Cthulhu's on its 7th edition, that D&D's on its 5th edition, and that Pathfinder's on its 2nd edition. I think it has much more to do with the culture at large 
and the circumstances of uh, just the accretion of these games being around for nearly 50 years now, and they've just gotten more and more popular every year. Uh, the exposure on of just communication via things like this, podcasts, blogs, actual plays and YouTube videos. There's just way, way, way more exposure than it used to be where it was word of mouth and a few magazines. Um, so the just the exposure. Uh, also, MMOs or whatever the hell they're called. I've never even play, really played one, but video games have taken on the trappings presented in in role-playing games to reach a general audience. You look at movies, um, the types of movies that have come out are much more, well, maybe not, maybe not movies, because there was like Star Wars and stuff back in the 70s, and um, and there were fantasy movies, but I don't think they were the, the blockbusters that you have now with things like Stranger Things and giving exposure to D&D and Critical Role in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies. So I think it's just saturation of the hobby um, that has brought more of the general public and the fact that nerd culture and role-playing games aren't seen as this problem behavior or dumb game anymore. They're not really viewed in that light by as many people. So... I don't really think it has much at all to do with the actual system, the popularity. It, it probably does to some degree, but uh, I don't know how much I attribute to that to, and I don't know how we could even quantify it. But yeah, uh, thanks for the call, Joe. I wasn't trying to expand the argument to mean simple games, old games are better for everyone. They're just better for me and my group. Oh, just one more thing. Yeah, I forgot about Game of Thrones. Talk about Elephant in the Room. There's another huge uh, property that appealed to the general audience and I can only assume led to more people becoming accepting and fans of fantasy in general and probably just more potentially interested in games like D&D. There wasn't anything like that <laughs> back in the 70s or 80s or, I don't know, maybe the Night Stalker, but you know, that's just like paranormal investigation, so no, that doesn't count. Yeah, nothing like that back then. I think, yeah, again, these are all the types of things that I think have had way more impact on popularity of D&D uh, now than previously much more than just the system but who knows so rob i finished the episode and yeah you know it's interesting i guess the divide really in what you're talking about is between playing an adventure game and playing a role-playing game and i'm not trying to offend anybody or say either one is wrong or say a play style is wrong because it's not and i'm not saying one's better than the other but I think what you're describing and the idea of using them as avatars and almost war game pawns is more of a playing an adventure game than the role-playing game. Um, it's interesting. When we played with Griff, 
the guy that did The Secrets of Blackmore, that was very much role-playing, you, you know, with that side of it, interacting with NPCs and, and, and talking to them and all that kind of stuff. And Now, I'm not saying you guys don't talk to NPCs in your game, but it leaned much more into the role-playing side than the adventure game side. And now I have to go re-record my next episode so it's one of your favorite kinds of episodes as opposed to a session recap. Yeah, I've heard uh, people, and I've probably done it in episodes in the past as well, drawing kind of a distinction between a fantasy adventure game and a role-playing game. Because uh, the Moldvay, and I think the Cook Marsh expert, but the basic and expert boxes, uh, describe them as fantasy adventure games. And uh, the idea of a role-playing game, I know it wasn't mentioned at all in uh, the original OD&D booklets, the idea of a, a role-playing game. I mean, it, <laughs> uh, as, it, as it has become known to us or whatever, as it's evolved, that it wasn't known. I mean, there was no term role-playing games originally, right, until after D&D came around. I mean, we, I think people that played games, uh, board games and such, would have kind of a pseudo role playing kind of game, and there's Bronstein and stuff. But you know, you play Monopoly and become kind of, you might ha have an attachment to a, a pawn that you use in the game. I want to play the race car all the time, or I want to play the the thimble, whatever. Uh, and if you play a, a war game, you maybe become attached to a. Uh, a certain unit in the game or a leader or something like that because you I don't know they you had some lucky die rolls with with that unit or something and it's you've you've grown an, an attachment to it so but the whole idea of like adopting a different role and especially a different persona in the game to what you yourself are um, yeah, that's the type of thing I'm not as interested in. So if you want to draw a distinction between these two things along that terminology, fantasy adventure game, role-playing game, yeah, I'm much more interested in the fantasy adventure game. I think like most people, I've kind of, that, that position fluctuates and has fluctuated throughout my gaming uh, life. There have been times when I've been kind of yearning for more role play in the games. Um, but I've kind of shifted back a little bit and got a taste of some of that and discovered it's really not what I'm after. <laughs> and uh, it can be a little bit, as you described when you're like what my character would do kind of situation. Um, those types of things just kind of they can be fun for a little while but eventually they tend to get under my skin a little bit um, in play in, in long term play when people are habitually like nerfing their character by that's what my character would do to the detriment of what the whole group can do is that that does get kind of old to me which I know isn't the entire that doesn't embody the idea of role-playing. But, uh, um, it, yeah, it's just kind of a different kind of object or goal you're trying to get out of the game. And my goal is to just kind of 
just play the game, play an adventure game. And to me, it's much more interesting when we're just kind of putting ourselves, projecting our own selves into the game. And, well, this is my avatar's stats and powers in the game, but it's still me or Keith or Brian or Adam or whoever uh, that's controlling this person in the game and that's who we're playing with. I'm not playing with um, Josephine the elf and uh, Ragnar the dwarf and whatever, you know, it's... <laughs> I, don't I don't guess I never really lose sight of the people around the table that are, or the virtual table, that are actually playing the game. So, I don't know, does that mean I don't get immersed? Hmm? But, uh, I think we've got some more calls about this kind of, this topic from Daniel from Bandit's Keep. Yeah, I think you're dead on with the continuum and the kind of the, the way we go into this. I mean, I find myself being <laughs> both things. Uh, typically when we drop into a role that is, we're gonna have a social interaction with somebody, I wanna try to convince a monster or a guard or something. I will try to take on as best as possible the role of my character and talk in voice, not necessarily with, the, with the accent, but you know, just as they would talk as best I can do it and but in between things I'm generally me you know strategizing and <laughs> using the stats of the character to do their thing because you know I don't necessarily stay in, in character as they say all the time and I don't find that to necessarily be fun for me but I know some people that really like it in so far as right the stats being how much information you give them that's pretty dead on as to how I do it high intelligence you get more information low intelligence you get less yeah, and this is touching a little bit on what Jason was saying, too, about role-playing with NPCs. That's where it comes into play in our games. Uh, your role-playing is primarily your interactions with NPCs and monsters. And that's when the players maybe ham it up a little bit and talk in character or whatever. But outside of those interactions, it, it's it's mainly just us. <laughs> you know, formulating a strategy or talking about what we're going to do next or whatever. We're not having these campfire scenes where we're talking in character or anything like that. And while the topic of, like, that's not what my character would do has cropped up once in a while, it's not really something that uh, comes into play for most of the people I play with. But, um, yeah, I think uh, Daniel's points are follow very similarly with my line of thinking and again with the the stats as well where as daniel outlines <clears throat> or, <laughs> or uh restates what i was saying yeah if you have a, a high intelligence i think it's best handled by just the dm providing that character with more intel with more information if you have a high charisma you're given more uh, information to give you advantages in social interactions with the NPC. You maybe you know more about it, or you just pick up on these nonverbal and verbal cues that people have in in interpersonal communication, and you just give that the player with the high charisma more information to help them along in the social interaction um, versus someone with a low charisma or something. Yeah, I think that's. I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, uh, Rich Frazier is 
got some things to say and will transition us into some heavy bard talk. Hey Rob, just wanted to weigh in on your hate of the bard and uh, players that can't play their class. Um, isn't that what a GM is though? Like, as a GM, I have to play people with an 18 intelligence, 18 charisma, and I, I just wing it, you know? I just do what I think is best. Um, I don't mind letting players do that. Uh, I had a really uncharismatic player want to play the face of a party. And what I did was I, I talked them through it. You know, what's your intent here? What are you trying to get out of the conversation? You know, because what you're saying sounds like an asshole. So we, we would go with intent more than what his speech was. As far as bards go, uh, have you read Hyperion? That is the perfect bard in my uh, opinion. This guy is an asshole. He's a drunk. He sings songs when it's inappropriate. And the whole fucking party hates him. Um, sorry if I swore too much. Have a good one. Thanks for the call, Rich. That's Rich from Cockatrice Nuggets. And that is one of the inconsistencies or hypocrisies, maybe you could say, about some of my arguments is that, well, Rob, you have to do that as a DM, right? You have to act like you are a genius or have a really high charisma or whatever when you're playing the NPCs, or you have to play an elf, or you have to play uh, an ogre, you have to play... um, the elf maiden, you have to play the little toddler, all these different potential roles. And to which I'd say a few th- these things. A, the DM usually has secret knowledge that the players don't have, so that allows them to better pull off some of those things. You know, they know what the, say, what's in the dungeon system. So if an NPC is really intelligent and knows about the dungeon system, well, you can play that character better because you know about it or, or you have a better idea of like the culture of the game in your head than the players probably do. So you can have, um, have more knowledge in that regard. So it's, yeah, it's easier to pull off. I'd say that the DM's job is... Here I'm probably going to open up another big can of worms here. But the DM's job is is harder than the player's job and requires more skill and requires, I think, a better communicator than the player's role in general. That's not saying... I'm not saying that DMs are better um, than all players. Um, but they, I think they do have to be better than most players to to pull off the job. They have to be, uh, yeah, just better communicators and better at uh, at being able to play a wide variety of roles. And the last thing I'll say is that the DM is ro- running a cast of characters. They're not, like, immersing themselves into one character and really drilling down on the focus of the desires of this one character Usually you're playing things at a much more cursory level as the DM, or at least I am. I'm not getting into the nitty-gritty of the um, mannerisms and whatnot of all these different NPCs. I maybe do with some of them, and especially if there's a, there's only a couple that the players are interacting with at the moment, um, or like in a session or something. Um, or if there's a, a main NPC or very important NPC, I'll flesh them out more and stuff, but... Uh, and I don't inter, I don't really try and step too far into things that are 
outside of my purview. I don't, I don't really try and role play women that much. I mean, they're, (laughs) they're just me, right? So, um, and I think you can get a little weird when you start trying to play a different gender and you can maybe assign some unsavory, like, cliche and stereotype characteristics to things pretty easily if you don't watch out, which, I mean, that's, that's not always bad, but it, <clears throat> it can be a little, it can devolve into something <laughs> that could be a little bit yeah, unsavory, yeah. So, that's what I'd have to say about those things. I have not, I'm not familiar at all with Hyperion. I don't know. I'm assuming it's a fantasy novel or series, so I didn't... One came up when I did a quick search for Dan Simmons. I don't know if that's the one you're referring to or not, but no, I'm not familiar with that. But uh, there you go. There's a recommendation from Rich if um, you're looking for some drunken, obnoxious bard (laughs) action. It sounds like Hyperion might be the thing. And now I've got a series of calls. Well, wait, there's something about a couple more recommendations quick we'll go to before some uh, deep dive into Bard Talk. Manly Wade Wellman had the Silver John novels where he's in Appalachia and he sings, he plays guitar, cast spells, really cool stuff. Definitely check those out. They're hard to find now, the Silver John stuff, but it's well worth your time. And even if you had spent some bucks on the used um, book market, they're, they're really good. Yeah, Wanley, Manly, yeah, that guy, Manly Wade Wellman, something like that, I'm driving the car. But it, yeah, Silver John, look up Silver John, it'll pop up. But the I, what I was going to say before you said that was The Hobbit has a really cool bard in it. Oh, wait, you don't mean that kind of bard. Rob's Evil Jeff. Uh, getting partway through your playing the game or playing the game, podcast and you were going on about the bard Uh, the author you were looking for was manly wade wellman his silver john or john the balladeer novels there are four or five of them out there Um, and he's going through appalachia uh, doing stuff so uh, a little bit of supernatural horror in a way and things like that but yeah that's who you were looking for right there Somebody probably already contacted you about this, but I figured I'd give a shout out since uh, those are some good books. That's one of the uh, a good author there to get into later. Ooh, and at the end there of Evil Jeff's uh, from Indians and Musings call, there was a little, uh, little horn. <laughs> I wonder where that came from. But yeah, thanks for setting me straight, guys. I. I guess I knew it wasn't Handsome Harley Race, but uh, Manly Wade Wellman, that could be a great wrestling name, too. Um, I did kind of do a little search here this morning online, and yeah, whew, prices are pretty steep for the Silver John novels. I think the cheapest thing I found was $15 used. Well, they're all used, right? Um, so, I don't know. I'll, I'll maybe check some out. Maybe I'll do a little search and see if I can find like a audiobook on YouTube or in some other free format that I can check out first because oh I I've got 
more than a hundred books laying downstairs that still need to be read. Insofar as, and I'm not through the whole episode, and I have to get out of the car, but I want to, to call in. Insofar as what Jason's talking about, as far as the uh, playing the game thing, I understand that, and I know I get that a lot too when people say things like, well, you know, I want to use my charisma stat or whatever. I remember, I probably have said this before, I was having a conversation with somebody in Twitter, and I was like, well, one of the things I do is if somebody just has a high charisma or high intelligence, I'll just let them succeed because it makes sense. And they actually were like, I don't like when a DM does that because I want to roll. That's why I put all my points in intelligence so I can roll that D20 and get a really high roll. So, which I found to be really interesting and not at all something that I had considered before. So it's definitely a thing. While I kind of agree with you as far as the bard and stuff, I think one of the problems is that so many of these classes or so many of these angles, people are using the same trope and there's more than one kind of bard and more than one kind of really smart person or really, you know, not smart person, I guess for lack of a better way to say it. The idea that every bard has to be quippy and, and you know, play a lute is, I think, just going down the wrong route. You could be somebody who's just super interested in history and traveling around and making notes. Somebody that wants to learn other cultures, like an anthropologist, right? If you, I mean, obviously not exactly like that, but that to me is a bard. You know, they hang out in taverns and listen to stories, not necessarily tell them. I think that in... 5th edition D&D, and maybe editions before that, obviously I, I had a big jump between them, the emphasis on ability scores and then having certain classes be X ability score based is part of the issue here, right? Because bards are, quote, charisma based, so of course everybody playing a bard is going to want to have a high charisma because that benefits their character more. But if you think of the bard as more like a collector of knowledge or somebody who is, uh, you know, interested in things... You could have a high intelligence bard, right? A bard, somebody who's super smart and knows all the legends and lore. He can tell you all about the history and the, the things, but maybe if they got up in front of a crowd, they would get all tensed up and wouldn't be able to uh, talk. Also, as far as like charisma goes, just because you have a low charisma doesn't mean you're an asshole. Sorry to swear on your show. It just means that you aren't necessarily a good leader. People aren't necessarily going to follow you. Maybe you're timid or soft-spoken. Maybe you stumble over your words. There's lots of ways that you could have a low charisma and not be a jerk. Same thing with high charisma. You could be an amazing uh, listener and a leader by allowing people to do things and not be the person that stands up in front and gets people motivated by a speech. Charisma has many different uh, angles, right? There's tons of different types of leaders. There's tons of different types of followers. So again, just taking one view of what intelligence is or charisma is or a bard is or a paladin is, I think is the problem. And I'm not saying that you're doing it per se or that Jason's doing it, but that generally as players, we do that because there's always the certain trope they fall into. I tend to lean into the camp of you shouldn't play something that you're not able to pull off at the table, meaning that if you are going to play, if you want to play a powerful magic user that kicks butt using magic all the time, just having a bunch of spells on your character sheet is not going to do that. You have to be the kind of player that's going to know how to game those spells, to make those spells the most useful for the party. I can tell you that I've had players in the past play with me that had high-level magic users and basically were com almost completely useless in a sense because they didn't think about how to use the spells in a way that were super smart for the game. So just writing a class on your paper and having ability scores doesn't make you good at it, in my opinion. So, <laughs> boy, I probably should have made a whole podcast about that. I sent you so many messages. Sorry about that. 
I'm going to uh, listen to the rest as I'm driving home, so we'll see if I have any more to add. But I like where you're going with it, though. I, I definitely like your reasoning, and I think it makes a lot of sense. And that, of course, was Daniel from Bandits Keep Media Empire. I appreciate your thoughts on bards and attributes and role-playing attributes and the idea of tropes and kind of falling into these ruts and habits and stuff and memes. I What you outline is in large part one of my issues with bards is that they've they have become this kind of one note <laughs> no pun intended uh, I don't know so there people play them A as like a jack of all trades and B as the kind of I don't know if anti-hero is the right word but just kind of the outsider, wanderer, who philanderer, especially, but also kind of the rock star. And I'm not sure really where, maybe it's because that's a common, like, idol of people is a musician and especially the, the front man. So when they think of Bard, it's, it's become synonymous with entertainer and it's become synonymous with music and you people kind of identify with the current age and think of what a bard is in in modern the modern world and and think of it as well it's a rock star and what do rock stars do well I, that's how they play them so the bards in my games almost always end up like busking in taverns for for spare coins and trolling for um, sexual partners and stuff like that and it just it gets really old and they're almost always kind of the try to be the quipster and stuff so it's where the bard class I think was trying to fuse some different historical elements the Celtic bard the European minstrel the Nordic scald I think what's become the the current bard is more the prankster as well as the the support tool because the mechanisms for the bard have changed over the editions maybe part of the issue is the whole like charming with their music idea that i think has been in was in all the early editions of the well yeah the early edition the strategic review and first edition but especially first edition, you couldn't just be a bard right away. There were almost no bards. You had to have four 15s, a 12, and a 10 in your attributes. And then you had to be a fighter at least to fifth level, I think. A thief until at least sixth level. And then you became a bard. So we're talking a very few characters could qualify with their attributes. Just rolling that, unless you're using some really generous um, stat generation method, almost no one is going to qualify. And then you have to play for like a year or two in other classes, working your way towards a bard. So by the time you become one, your character is already kind of established. Uh, whereas starting with the Dragon Magazine bard, which tried to do a character class from the beginning, a first level bard that you could just start playing. And then 
the second edition Bard as well became more of a jack-of-all-trades. Well, they're all whatever. It became something you could just start playing. And um, yeah, I, don't, I just don't know if there's really much of a role for the, the character as the, the jokey prankster, because anyone could be a jokey prankster. You don't need, need to be a bard to be that. Uh, and I think what you're saying here, Daniel, when you're talking about how there are many kinds of bards. You could be a historian. You could be a gatherer of knowledge. You could be um, a, someone that just studies things and a listener rather than a performer. Uh, the the early bard classes got all these additional languages too, which kind of points more towards the the almost the academic and the intellectual rather than the I think with my wiener <laughs> bard. Uh, that's become kind of the trope. Um, so yeah, I think if if people explored these different things, I'd be a lot more interested in it, but it usually devolves. And that's how I think a lot of these classes devolve. It's the barbarian now is usually just the berserker. In fact, in 5e, that's really what they are. Their whole thing is rage, right? So it's, uh, that's, that's why I don't really appreciate some of these peripheral classes they and when people try to do something different they usually lean into the absurd and the ridiculous rather than the subtle uh, to make my bar barbarian different i'm going to be a halfling barbarian or to make my monk different i'm going to be a, a gnome monk or whatever you know that they, they lean into the ridiculous um i'm going to be a, a magic user with with my 16 strength and 10 intelligence and um, rather than leaning into subtleties, because subtleties don't play as well at the table, um, and it's harder to express subtleties than it is in an appreciable or a manner that other people pick up on than it is to hit someone over the head with a clown hammer. So, yeah. <laughs> I'd Yeah, I'd love to see more... Uh, good, subtle role-playing than over-the-top, absurd role-playing. And maybe that's my problem with it. My other issue with the Bard is I think it's just a shortcut for people. People want to be able to have characters that can do everything, and the Bard in most class, in most versions offers this jack-of-all-trades. You can be the fighter magic user thief, or the fighter druid, or however you want to do it with these magical power, these magical song powers and stuff to boot without the huge experience point cost that goes into being an actual multi-class character or in BX and Elf. Instead of, oh, I can be the bard and uh, have druid spells and some thiefiness and I can fight and it doesn't cost nearly as many experience points. So in some regards, I think it's almost power gaming too. I think a lot of times the people that are drawn to the bard are the power gamers too. And again, in my experience... 5e they're like a full-fledged spellcaster and they get a d8 hit dice and they get uh all these other kooky powers inspiration and all that um and they can wear armor and you know it's and use a lot of martial weapons it's yeah it's <laughs> it's kind of the power gamer class to me oh and they can heal too so f the cleric <laughs> and now bj also has a lot to say about bards and playing the game. 
Hey Rob, it's BJ. Um, I was calling in on, I think I'm an episode behind. <laughs> I'm calling in about your episode on are you playing the game or are you playing the game? Um, you know, as far as Carrick playing the playing it more as the game or leaning into heavy role play or leaning into your character. Uh, a couple a couple thoughts I had were, one, for all the fluff and description we get in, in modern games on the uh, ancestries and races and the kind of cultures they have and the way that they're not human and throwing background characters you might get based on your family's or your own profession before your adventure... I still don't see the majority of players using that as a cue for how they play their characters. They treat it as a package of statistics that fleshes out what their characters can do. And even when they have an opportunity, even with just kind of superficial role-playing with NPCs, to let those backgrounds and ancestries inform their approach, they don't do it. (laughs) A handful of people I've played with more recently do, but most of them don't, and that's okay. Because I think we're talking about you're really there to play the game and your character is an avatar of yourself. What I get a little more frustrated with is when someone won't lean into the role that their class is supposed to play in the party. So you, so you get a spellcaster and the player doesn't manage their use of their spells in a way that helps. Like, okay, you chose to play the cleric, so the rest of us chose not to. And the last thought you ever has to you're not monitoring the rest of us in terms of our health and when when you need to you know get into position to offer a healing spell or something like that or you chose to play the fighter but you're the last one to to move up into the front ranks of, of of combat but you've got the best armor and the most hit points so you know the rest the rest of the party can't do its job if you don't understand your fundamental role is to kind of do that in the way at least in the way the game plays out or if you know, does that mean we need to recruit a henchman or a <laughs> somebody needs to, to, to tweak their character or something? So I, I think part of that is just it's a team sport and you kind of have to know your position based on the kind of character you've made. Even if you're not going to heavily role play that character's personality or worldview, you at least need to kind of role play their skill set in the way it was more or less intended to. And some people say, oh, no, that's wrong. Players can be able to do whatever they want with their player. But, you know, there's playing in the spirit of the game and in the in a way that helps you cooperate with everybody else. And then there's being contrary, and you never want to be contrary. Which may kind of leads me to some of the comments on bards. I, th- I think I understand what you're saying. It takes the right kind of approach to play a bard because so many people, again, it's it's they're 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 not. You kind of have to read the room. What you would think of all people, a bard should be able to read the room. But <laughs> they play a bard in order to showboat but they continue to showboat in places where showboating is not the solution that's needed for the problem at hand, and it can kind of edge out the spotlight from other players who are trying to, you know, at least in the role-playing parts of the games, um, maybe not so much in the skills and combat parts of the game. But, um, yeah, I I see what you're saying there. Um, If you want to look at Appendix N for a good example of a bard, look at the, uh, the, uh, the Reluctant King trilogy. I'm drawing a blank on the uh, on the author. It may be else. It might be Elspreg de Camp. Anyway, um, the main character is a uh, kind of wandering. He, he's been forced to be king of a country. And he doesn't want to be king, so they, he escapes and goes on a series of journeys. But he's a he's kind of a 
womanizing, uh, fast talking, tall tale telling kind of a guy. Um, he's still he's still basically a good person and kind of heroic, but 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 those are some of his flaws and his his quirks. So he kind of strikes me as maybe a kind of a bard type character, the type of character you might play using the bard class. But I think historically, they've kind of I don't know where the idea where bards have become these um, flamboyant, sex crazed. Um, I, I think that was one meme somewhere on the internet that just took off, and everybody assumes that's the default. Whereas, as I recall, the bard in AD and D, it's much more of a. They have ties to the well, in first edition, ties to kind of the druidic religion, and they're more druidic in their, because that's historically bards are part of the same cultural caste, religious, you know, parts of society for for the ancient Celts, as far as we know. Um, but even in second edition, when they became more of an arcane character, you know, the sort of rakish minstrel was just one way of playing the bard. They were still, you know, much more had to be very intelligent and very, uh, their, their role were as poets and historians and storytellers, not, you know, being able to sing was just one aspect of their, their talent, not the defining aspect of everything they do. So, so somewhere along the ways that they got changed into the kind of the annoying, sometimes annoying bard we have now. Hey, and that was BJ, the game doc from the Arcane Alienist podcast. Thanks for sharing your thoughts and ideas and uh, opinions on some of these things, playing the game and bards. Lots of good stuff there. Some of it kind of also calling back what Daniel was saying, too, about, you know, some some players aren't suited to play different characters. And it doesn't it doesn't just apply to bards. If you can't think up of how to pull off a good heist or a caper, maybe you shouldn't be playing a thief. Or if you can't think of how to be a, a scout and a recon person, maybe you shouldn't play a, a thief or a, a ranger. If you can't think tactically, maybe you shouldn't play a fighter. If you can't manage spells, don't be a magic user, you know, th- these types of things. It's one thing to kind of, oh, I want to play it so I get better at this type of stuff. That's cool. I, I can get into that. But if you're just inept at some of these things, maybe just stay in your lane. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but the other another thing that BJ brings up, well, there's the whole idea of playing different demi-human, non-human classes or races, species, whatever, uh, and not even making a or making a very feeble attempt to play yourself as like an alien species some people can do that pretty well other people it's really easy for them to just fall into behaving like you would as a human you lose sight of the fact that oh i'm only three feet tall and 60 pounds or i'm uh, this otherworldly fey creature or i'm this uh uh uh, this character that likes that prefers being underground and in the dark and stuff and instead I think it's yeah viewed far more by players as a suite of powers and goodies that you get for choosing that class or that species versus another I'm guilty of it myself in Keith's newest game I chose to be a human fighter in his like BX game but I knew in my heart that the dwarf was a way better 
choice, but I purposely just said, no, I'm going to, I'll play the human fighter. So, uh, I mean, my, my instinct is to be more of a power gamer and say, no, I'm going to play the dwarf because it's stupid to play the human fighter, but I'm just going to, I'm going to do it. Um, you bring up the spirit of the game. I think that's maybe the most important thing to flesh out and to get right with the other people you're playing with is the spirit of the game. It's supposed to be kind of a game, or it's set up to be a game of cooperating. It doesn't have to be a course. You can have PvP, player versus player. You can have... Um, you can have separate agendas and stuff, and that that can be interesting, but I think at its heart, the game is meant to be a cooperative game where you're striving towards the same goals. And again, I think they're better as simple goals and simple adventures, or at least straightforward goals and straightforward adventures. Um, you can certainly have twists and turns, but if the whole thing, if it always leads to red herrings and betrayals and convoluted plots and stuff, um, I think you wind up having, especially if you play sporadically, you have everyone forgetting what the hell's going on. And if you have competing agendas among the players, I think that can also lead to um, a lot of issues at the table, uh, chief among them that you're not nearly as effective as a, as a party. Um, and yeah, the, the whole idea of bards, I, I kind of went into that in my reply to Daniel. I don't know where it really kind of went off the rails or if it's always been off the rails as far as playing the horny, I'm a rock star bard, you know, the, as you point out, the flamboyant kind of sex crazed, attention seeking, um, rake. But it's been around a, a long time because, well, I mean, they completely lampooned the bard and the gamer's darkness rising. And when did, did that come out? Like in 2011 or 12. So that's that's been a a uh, something to lampoon for at least a decade, and I'm I'm guessing way longer than that. Um, so I don't know where kind of went that in that direction, but. This whole idea of roles and stuff, that's where I think the bard is kind of a little, as a class, unless you have them as the, the lore keeper, the lore seeker, the intellectual, the, the person that really is the face of the party because they know a ton of languages and, uh, and, and lore. Um, but that also can be the magic user, the wizard, whatever. So I don't think there is a really good defined role for the bard in a party, and that's maybe part of the issue. And why, rather than trying to quote-unquote fix the bard, I just jettison them from my games. Um, but lots of good bard talk, and now Daniel's got a few closing um, calls regarding... Uh, sharing campaign knowledge with the players as a DM and having secrets in your campaign and his thoughts about that. Um, this has kind of turned into a long conversation. It's not really a specific topic, but may, maybe some of these Wednesday shows are going to be like this. Uh, 
And it's maybe better rather than to call him a call-in bonanza. It's like a Wednesday conversation with my podcasting pals. You know, talking about like having a document, talking about the setting ahead of time. Yeah, because I've definitely run into a couple of weird situations where like GMs wanted to be vague because they wanted it to be a surprise and it wasn't as fun for me as a player. So things like where they're just like, make a character in a modern world and then everybody makes a character that just doesn't necessarily all fit together. Like it's weird. Like some people make characters that are like loaded down with all kinds of weapons and you know, ex-army this and that, and other people are making, you know, baristas at Starbucks. So it's like, you got to kind of have some information. And I remember one particular time I was asked to play in a game of Operation White Box, which is a World War II game. And I was like, oh, awesome. I want to play a World War II soldier. Very excited. We were like 10 minutes into it and surprise, they wanted to do Predator. So all of a sudden we're playing sci-fi, avoiding this Predator, which was not really what I signed up for. And I got to tell you, it made, it, it, it made what would have been I might got cut off there. So what might have been a really fun session had I gone into it being like, oh man, World War II and then some sci-fi mix where we have to fight an alien to why are we fighting an alien when I signed up for a World War II game? So yeah, I think that secrets are important and they're good to have to keep things uh, interesting, you know, pull out different setting things that the players maybe didn't know. But I think as a player, the player characters, no, I should say, but I think as a player, you got to know what you're walking into. If you tell me we're going to play you know, Dungeons and Dragons, and next thing you know, we're in 1920s Gaslight solving the Cthulhu mystery. Well, then we're not playing Dungeons and Dragons, no matter what rule set you're using, right? We're playing Call of Cthulhu. So yeah, you got to actually be open with the players about some stuff. I think that's super important. So this would also be true about house rules and settings. You, you want to have that conversation up front. You don't want somebody joining up for your game thinking, oh, this is going to be really cool. And then it's not at all what they thought it was going to be. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. You got to be open about where where your campaign idea might, especially, differ from kind of the conventional thinking, and where it's important for the players to know before they make up characters. So if you're if you're thinking up a setting where magic users are persecuted for being witches and warlocks and stuff, well you got to let the players know that ahead of time so if someone makes up a magic user they know what they're signing up for like if you if uh if you're playing birthright uh, the second edition D&D setting where elves are kind of thought of uh by the humans in the setting almost in the same way that they think of goblins and stuff they're generally enemies of mankind you got to let the players know that so that if someone makes up an elf, they know that, yeah, if you walk into town, you're probably going to get strung up or at least treated like crap. Um, if you're going to have a, a nautical setting, you know, where it's going to be a lot of island hopping and a lot of being on ships and stuff, yeah, let the players know that so that they can make up characters that are suited towards playing that game and not some heavily armored knight that relies on mounted combat and stuff i mean if it's never going to happen you wouldn't want to play that character right so yeah you got to be upfront uh about the the grand concepts and schemes and where things really differ from the norms of, of whatever the game it is you're playing um if you're playing call of cthulhu but you actually can go up and you know 
punch out a Shoggoth or something, well, you gotta make sure they know that it's not, like, the actual H.P. Lovecraft stories. It's more heroic characters or super heroic characters or something. Um, and, yeah, house rules as well. You gotta, I think you gotta either sit down and hash it out with the group or give it to them in writing well in advance so that they can digest it and bring up concerns or new ideas about and new approaches of maybe modifying what you've laid out so that everyone can have a good time or at least know what they're getting into <laughs> so that's it um, um yeah no no main topic today just a conversation and thanks to jason from rpg variety cast to BJ from Arcane Alienist, Joe from Hindsightless, Daniel from Bandit's Keep, Rich from Cockatrice Nuggets, Evil Jeff from Minions and Musings. I think I got everyone. Oh, and, and Free Thrall. Um, Spencer, thanks for singing my theme song and being the bard for the episode. And until I talk to you on Saturday with some random thoughts, thanks for listening. And don't go down in a heap. Taylor, I knew I forgot someone. Thanks, Taylor from Clerics or Ringmail. Time to go.